Good morning. Good morning. It really is a pleasure to be in this beautiful space. I, mean, I don't know if you guys realize how pretty this church is. Mm -hmm. So as Bill said, um, my wife, Marta, and I, and she's actually back over there with her parents. They're from Spain. We're all from Spain. So there's some translation happening over there. They're not just gossiping on how bad the sermon is. Although they may be doing that as well, um, depending on how this goes. But um, I was just going to say, we're from Spain, and, and the evangelical population, or the, the Christian population probably, because it, it's just very small. And so our churches are normally storefronts at best. <laughs> so to come into a building like this and hear the gospel preached is just really a privilege. Um, today I get to preach it too, which is a double privilege. So I say that from my heart. It's just a pleasure to be here. As Bill said, we're, I'm um, an associate pastor of Extension Ministries. I work with Jeanette, or JT, depending on how you know her, who is generally congregates here with you guys. And it's been an adventure to be here for the last two months. We're really enjoying Kansas City. Um, and we just thank you for this opportunity. So today is our second Sunday in the DNA series. I think if, if any of you were last week, you'll remember, were here last week, um, you'll, you'll remember we started talking about the DNA of our church. What are the things we're passionate about? What are the things that make us tick, that make us work? Um, and we're not just asking these questions in a self-serving way. This is something we all need to know as a church. This is like a family, con a family conversation to us, which as any family conversation, some people love and some people hate. But we're gonna. But it's important, right? It's important to remember why are we here? Why are we doing what we're doing? Um, if you're new here, this is a great day to be here. You get to see us for who we are, um, where we think we're strong, where we think we need a lot of help, where we want to grow, where we want to be. So welcome um, and thanks for being here. This is a good Sunday to be here. So let me just summarize what we've been talking about. Um, we like to summarize what we're about in three multiplies. We like to say, and you can see it on the screen. We're, we like multiplying churches, or we're about multiplying churches, we're about multiplying disciples, and we're about multiplying leaders. And so last week, Bill talked about multiplying disciples, and he probably said something like this. He probably said, we will never have too many churches. Um, and we announced our launching of our fifth campus as Christ Community, because we really believe this, we really believe our city needs more churches. Um, but this statement, we will never have too many churches, I'm sure it bothers some of you. I, it bothered me a little bit when I first heard it. And why does it bother us? Because often we've heard or we've seen this multiplying churches as kind of just a repackaging of the same thing that doesn't really work anyway. Shuffling Christians around that already go to church, maybe offering better coffee or better music, but nothing really happening, right? No transformation, just more people added to something that we're not really sure what it is. Um, and, you know, if all we mean in multiplying churches is that more people come on Sunday mornings, there is a danger that that just becomes an empty statement that's not really helpful to anyone. Because here's the thing, we don't need more churches with more people. We don't need more organizations that, that are aimed at capturing more people's pocketbooks and loyalties. We don't need bigger empires for pastors to make bigger salaries. Churches do not need more people. So you're probably asking, well, what do churches need, right? And that's our question this morning. What do multiplying churches need? And here's what I want to say. To thrive or to do what churches are supposed to do, churches need more disciples. They need multiplying disciples. Or put it in a personal way, Christ's community isn't called to multiply people. But we're called to multiply disciples. Let me just say that again. Christ's community, we're not called to multiply people. 
we're called to multiply disciples. And that's why the two statements that we saw earlier, that's why they need to go together, right? We're called to multiply churches, and as we multiply churches, we're multiplying disciples. Or another saying, another way of saying it is we're called to multiply churches so that we can multiply disciples. You say, okay, Kenny, that's a great tagline. Good job. But what in the world is a disciple? Right? Is it this bearded guy? You know, all that says is already bearded men, aren't they? Um, and they're kind of angry too. But so, so what is a disciple? Is it just you know, is it just a random person? Do I want to be a disciple? Um, am I a disciple? Are you a disciple? How does Christ's community help us become disciples? Well, I'm glad you asked those questions because <laughs> this is what our passage is all about this morning. If you want, if you haven't turned there yet, please turn to Ephesians three, fourteen to twenty-one, and we're going to see. A picture, a painting of what a growing disciple is. And this text is a prayer that Paul is writing to churches that he's planted. That's what the book of Ephesians is about. It was sent to the church in Ephesus um, and circulated around different churches. And he's trying to show them what being a church is all about. And because God's work is timeless, this prayer applies to us directly. This is what God's telling us. This is what we're supposed to be all about as a church. So this morning as we look at this, as a church, we're trying to take the scripture and say, how do we apply this today? And I want to walk through that a little bit. Um, because it's such a rich passage, there's a lot of big words in here, and big concepts. I want us to concentrate on three major themes that Paul brings out, or maybe a different way of saying it is three characteristics that a disciple should have. So we're going to look at three characteristics that disciples have. But before even getting to the first characteristic, let me just say something that I hope will encourage you. This is a prayer. And by being a prayer, it means two things. First, that Paul is not saying, to belong to my church, you have to be like this. Rather, he's saying, I want to pray this over the people that already belong to the church. So I hope this is encouraging. If you hear this, like, man, I'm totally off. Be encouraged. This is what Paul's praying over the church. This is the kind of disciples that we want to see grow in the church. Secondly, because it's a prayer, he's asking God to do the work and not us. And I hope that's encouraging because we're pretty lousy at self-change, aren't we? I mean, bookstores are full of books that don't work about how to change yourself. So we're not going to tell you this morning, this is how you change yourself. Rather, we're going to look to God and say, God, please help us become growing disciples. So let's look at this first characteristics. This first characteristic, sorry. First characteristic of disciples is that disciples grasp God's love. Disciples grasp God, God's love. You probably noticed, as Bill read the text, that this word love appeared in two key places. Let me just point to those. If you look at verse 17, it says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love. Rooted and grounded in love. That's the first place we see love. And then second, if we read through 18 and 19, as we get to the end, or if we get to 19, it says, Paul's asking, that, that this congregation would know the love of Christ, would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And previously it says to comprehend the love of Christ. So you see, the first thing that we see here, and this is the most important thing, there's one thing I want you to go away from today uh, with. It's this discipleship is fundamentally about grasping God's infinite and self-giving love for you. Discipleship is fundamentally about grasping God's infinite and self-giving love for you. And not just knowing it, but increasingly experiencing it. And in fact, the, the word used in the text, it says comprehend or know. This word comprehend is, is kind of weak for what Paul's trying to say. The, the word in the original language has a sense almost of wrestling. That's why I call it grasp. 
we don't just, hey, I got God's love, yeah, cool. I know what it's all about, now I can go on with my life. No, what Paul's saying here is that we wrestle with God's love, that we try to pin it down. And you know, it takes our whole life to do that, to pin down God's love, to try to understand it. So you may ask, well, what's so, what's so great about this love? Well, let's look at it in this text. Um, the first thing that we see about this love that disciples are meant to grasp is that God's love is for everyone. Let me read the first two verses that we read this morning. It says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. And listen to what it says. The Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, that may just sound like a weird phrase, but for a Jewish rabbi to say this, and that's what Paul was, is a pretty shocking statement. Because he's calling God the Father, the Father of all peoples, of all families, of all nations. And see, this was a big deal for Paul. Because Jews at that time generally thought, that there's exceptions, but generally Jews thought, God has chosen us as his people, he loves us, and everyone else is going to be judged. Because they're not treating us right. You know, we have the Old Testament, there's, there's a line of that. And that may not, God communicated stuff different ways, but generally people thought, we're the loved people, and everyone else, these Gentiles, they're unclean. They're, they, they're, God is not their father. But Paul's saying here, God is the father from whom every name comes. Every family. What does this mean? When Paul encountered Christ, resurrected, something changed for him. And he suddenly realized, through Christ, God's love has been made available to all peoples of the earth. To different ethnicities, to different social classes, to different kinds of people. And in fact, that changed Paul's life so much that after that moment, he dedicated his life to travel the world, to multiply churches, multiply disciples amongst all kinds of different people in different social, ethnic, economic boundaries. So as we think about grasping God's love, the first thing we have to think is God's love is for everyone. And that's one of the hardest things to grasp, isn't it, as disciples, is to understand that God loves everyone, even people way far away that we see on TV and we don't really understand why they're doing what they're doing. In fact, God even loved Americans. They didn't even exist when Paul wrote this. Do you realize that? But God loved people so much that he even extended it to this continent. God even loves your neighbor that keeps throwing stuff into your yard. Believe it or not. So as we grow to be disciples and grasp God's love, one of the first things we need to understand is that God's love is for everyone. Another thing about God's love that we see in this passage is that God's love is huge. God's love is huge. Did you notice the kind of language he used for love? In verse 17, Paul asked that we be rooted and grounded in love. Kind of like the song we were singing, that the ground is where trees grow from, right? The ground is what mountains are made of. Like This love is deep so that we can put roots into it. Then Paul later on talks about the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of this love. When I, when I think of God's love in these terms, I often think of an ocean. Imagine being in the middle of an ocean. You can't even see where it ends, right? You just see horizons everywhere. That's how big God's love is. We can't, we can't even see it. We can't quite comprehend it because it's so huge. And here's the thing. I've, I've heard Christians often say, and I've probably said this before, you know, I didn't used to understand God's love, but then I got baptized and now I get it. Have you heard that before? Have you said that before? We should laugh at that. Because God's love is way bigger than we can ever comprehend. If you think you've got it, 
If you think you've understood God's love, you probably have the wrong God. You probably have a God that's way smaller than the God that we see in Scripture. God's love is vast. So as disciples, our life is about struggling and grasping and learning to grab onto this love and to hold onto it. I mean, think about it. How can you ever understand the depth of love that caused Christ to come into our world? To live the perfect life we should have lived and then take upon himself the terrible death that we should have died. How can anyone understand that kind of love? Listen to what Paul says elsewhere in Romans 5, 6 to 8 about this. He says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the, God, for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for the righteous person. Right? He's saying, you know, someone might die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How are we ever to understand that depth of love? And that's our task as disciples, mm. is to continually try to grasp that. In fact, remember this is a prayer. It's not even up to us to grasp that love, right? God has to reveal it to us. He has to show us. So God's love is for everyone. God's love is huge. And also, God's love is grasped in community. He's like, what? What does that have to do with this? Well, let me, let me just show you something. In verse 18, let me read this to you. Verse 18, if you want to read with me, it says, um, that we may have strength to comprehend, and what does it say next? With all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth? And then he goes on to say the love of Christ. So Paul is saying this comprehension, this grasping of the love of Christ, it happens in community. It happens with all the saints. And when Paul uses all the saints, he's referring to the church. It happens with the people that you're sitting next to today. There's no such thing as a lone ranger disciple. We wish there was, right? It, it's always a lot easier to understand God's love until you actually have to practice it with real people. I was thinking about this as I was driving here this morning. It's so easy to drive without other cars, isn't it? Yeah. But then you run into these people are just slow, or they didn't. Um, so anyway, that's off the point. But what I need to say is, grasping God's love is not just a solo exercise where we meditate and think on it. The Christian faith is to be lived in community. You see, when we have to let ourselves be loved by others and love others that aren't like us, that's where it gets real. That's where it goes beyond our comprehension and it has to be a life transformation. This is what discipleship is about, guys. It's about grasping God's love, trying to understand it by looking to God and looking to one another and loving them. So as a church, and here, here the question comes down to us, as a church, how do we do this? How do we, how do we create an environment where people <laughs> sound bad, but we're kind of forced to love each other and to bump into each other. And then there's, there's a number of ways. Sunday mornings is one of them, but I want to emphasize one this morning because it's coming up. Community groups, for us as a church, that's the key place where we see this kind of discipleship happening, where we're forced to grasp for God's love because we have to love one another. These are small groups. If you're new here, you may not have heard of them yet. Community groups are basically small groups of different people in our congregation we meet together once a week over um, I think a three or four month period and here we commit time honesty and vulnerability to one another all three of those words are scary if you think about it commit time honesty and vulnerability to one another to meet with one another to be honest 
both in asking questions and in answering questions. And we seek to love each other in those communities. So this morning, as a church, we want to encourage you, sign up for a community group. This is one of the first steps in discipleship, is to find a place where you're interacting with other people over the Word of God. In fact, this morning, back in my right corner, your left corner, um, there's going to be a little table where Paul's going to be there. Bill just mentioned this. You can sign up for a community group. Do it. This is an easy application. It sounds easy. <laughs> you actually sign up. So let's move on. Um, we said disciples grasp God's love. And that's the first characteristic and probably the main thing about disciples, the main thing I want us to think about this morning. But a second characteristic that's very tightly related is that disciples depend on God's power. Let me repeat that. Disciples depend on God's power. In this passage, we see these references to strength and power all over the place. Let me just point to a few. Um, in verse 16, it says that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. Or if we go to verse 18, it says that you may have strength to comprehend with all the strength. With all the saints, we need this strength. If we go down a little bit more to verse 20, it says, um, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power that work within us. In other words, disciples need to depend on God's power, even as we try to grasp his love. Only his power creates, maintains, and grows disciples. So then you say, okay, sure, but what's so, so important about this power? Why is Paul mentioning it here so much? That's a good question. It's a great question, guys. I love that. <laughs> Let's look back for a second. I want you to just look up one verse from where we started. Um, 3.13. Let me just read this. Paul's speaking to them. And he says, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So in this letter, we see this theme of suffering throughout the letter. Paul is actually in prison at this point, And he's writing to a church that's beginning to suffer persecution. But here's the interesting thing. Paul could pray for anything in this letter, right? He, he's not restricted by homiletic rules or some strange writing technique. He could, he could ask God for anything, but he doesn't ask him to take away the suffering or to take away the persecution. Did you notice that? Rather, he asked God to give us the power to comprehend his love. That's shocking, right? We live in a society and most of us tend towards this, but we want to numb the pain of the world. We don't want to suffer. T to give you an example, I got my uh, wisdom teeth pulled last week, last Friday. Um, and it was very painful. I didn't realize it was going to be that painful. And the, the doctor gave me some, you know, pain meds that are pretty strong stuff. And boy, those were wonderful. <laughs> right? I took a few of those and the pain, it was gone. It was great. Then I tried to go to some meetings and listen into what was happening. I had no idea what was happening. <laughs> I, I remember being there on Sunday and I just felt like I was 20 feet above the ground, just kind of like, whoa, this is great, I love church. <laughs> I, I remember my wife was caring for me apparently really well. I don't remember any of that. Okay, but, but I didn't have any pain, but I was kind of asleep to the world. And after a while, it was, it was just difficult to function, so I switched to Advil or ibuprofen. And suddenly the pain was a little more intense. I could feel what was going on in my mouth. I knew exactly what was going on. But I was also able to function normally. Or in other words, I was wide awake. 
wide awake to what was going on around me. Probably more awake than I normally would be, because you're constantly feeling something, right? I was able to perceive fully how much my wife was caring for me and loving me. I was able to help other people. I was even able to identify a little better what was happening so that I could care for myself better. And so by enduring the pain, I became much more effective in my life. Now, this isn't a campaign against pain meds, and I know there's different opinions, but I could care less about that. It's just an illustration. And I'm not saying that it's unacceptable to pray to God to relieve you from pain sometimes, or to relieve you from a given situation. We, we've all done that. Many of us, our discipleship journey began asking God to just free us from something. That's okay. But here's the thing, when we become more and more captivated with God's love, we become less and less interested in numbing the pain that this world causes. And we become more and more interested in giving our lives to help others through it by showing them God's love. We also become more dependent on God. We need God and we're more aware of that because we're awake to the situations. We depend on God, on God for strength and guidance. And you see, for this to happen in us, God has to transform something so deep. What Paul calls here the inner being, he has to change something within us because we tend to look towards God as kind of a butler. We tend to ask God, God, just provide for me these things. And God has to change us so that we start looking towards God as a father, as a lover, as someone who's loved us. And we just look to him and want to be with him regardless of what's happening around us. These are the kind of disciples we want to see our churches full of. These are people who are wide awake to God's love and to the world's needs. People who are completely dependent on Him to work in the midst of it. These are people who are unimpressed by worldly riches and comfort. People who choose generosity over abundant wealth. People who prefer to give themselves to others rather than demand that their rights be protected. They say to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is a picture of a disciple. This is what we're aiming for in our church as we come together and we seek God and we seek to grasp His immense and huge love for all people. We seek these kind of disciples that are able to press through the pain, not because they're strong American superheroes, but because God is giving them strength. And through the pain and through the suffering, their testimony is telling the people around them, this life is worth living more than a life where there is no pain. This is what we're looking for. And so you ask, how do, we, how do we do this as a church? Well, that's partly why we talk about multiplication so much. We could, we could, you know, this is a great building. We could just spend a lot more money in this building and make better coffee and more donuts or different kinds and, you know, do something that just makes everything, everyone much more comfortable here. But rather, we choose to multiply. You heard last week the, the campus in Aletha, they're giving away their best leaders to go out and multiply. And that makes us depend on God. This is the reason why we, we support extension ministries locally and globally. These are people that are dealing with the harshest social problems. We invest in them because we believe that God is going to work through them when no one else believes. We have global partners that we can't even talk about sometimes. They're in regions that are so persecuted and so difficult. This is why we do this, because we have to depend on God. We want to stay in a position of vulnerability. And get me, like, understand me, I'm not talking about reckless spending or just going crazy or being irresponsible, but I'm talking about trusting God a little more than what you have. Opening your hands a little more than what you want to, to give away things that would make your life easier for the glory of God. And this is why 
in addition to doing this as a church, this is why I can encourage you this morning to go out to your neighborhoods and to pray more boldly. Pray for your family. Pray for your friends. Pray for your neighbors. Trusting that God will work in them. Because it's not your power. If it was up to you for people to come to Christ, if it was up to me, like we'd be way over a long time ago. It's up to God. So we can pray boldly and say, God, bring people to you. Multiply disciples through me. We can also share boldly, can't we? We can share boldly because we know it's not our words that bring people to Christ. It's His. And we can live boldly. And even, let me say this, we can suffer boldly. I remember speaking to a, a friend. Her father was a, she's Korean. Her father was a missionary in China. He was martyred for the, uh, being a Christian. And his mother wrote the church a letter last, month, last Mother's Day. And the essence of the letter was this. The biggest testimony that we have, the thing that brings most people to Christ, is how they watch us suffer. When they see us suffer and see us depend on Christ, that's when people fall on their knees before the Lord and say, I want to serve this God. Think about that as we go about our lives. Disciples depend on God's power. Now let me end with this final point. It's the third characteristic. We've already seen disciples grasp God's love. Disciples depend on God's power. And thirdly, disciples long for God's glory. Disciples long for God's glory. At the end, the last two verses here are the climax of Paul's prayer. And look what he does. He can't help but turn to God and lift him up. Let's read that together. This is verses 20 and 21. Paul's getting to the end. He's talking about the fullness of God. And he says, Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. You see, God's glory is what gets disciples up in the morning and what puts them to sleep at night. That's why Paul can't help here but to bring it up. And we see this often in Paul's letters. He's talking about some really deep themes. And then he says, and to God be all the glory. He just, he can't avoid looking to God and saying, I want you to have the glory. You may be saying, okay, well, what is glory? Well, put simply, giving the glory to God means that God's agenda and God's plan guide your life and that He gets the credit for it. For God's agenda and God's plan guide your life and He gets the credit for it. And this is what disciples are called to do, is to give God the glory. And you see, as, as disciples, as we grow in our grasp of God's love and as we depend more and more on His power to endure and to multiply, our inner being is changed, and we literally start living in a different direction. So rather than making our own plans and setting our own agenda, as disciples, we start longing for God's plans. We start longing for God's agenda and for Him to get the credit for it. God is so beautiful to us that we say we just want people to see Him. That's the transformation that happens when Christ starts living richly within you. And something that happens in this process is we start losing sight of ourselves. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, great disciples don't think less of themselves. They think of themselves less. Isn't that great? Disciples don't think, of, think less of themselves. They think of themselves less. And that is truly the best life imaginable. Can you imagine not having to think about yourself all day long? <laughs> I mean, I long for this, to be honest. 
to not be worried about what people think about my clothes or, or, or the way I'm preaching the sermon right now. Um, so people don't have to think of, am I being kind of strange going over to my neighbor and inviting them over for dinner? And, and fear of what the other says doesn't paralyze me. The only way to get there is to give God the glory, to turn our lives and our faces to God so that we're all about giving Him glory. And here's the thing, that doesn't just happen Sunday mornings. This has to be in our day-to-day lives. When our entire life is aimed at God's glory, our entire life displays discipleship. We become fully dedicated disciples Sunday to Monday to Tuesday and throughout the week. When people live daily lives dedicated to God's glory, crazy things happen too. Because it's no longer our agenda, we start dreaming bigger, right? Because our agenda has to be small because we're small. When we start thinking of God's agenda, we start dreaming bigger. We start hoping for more and praying for bigger things. We start thinking, singing, you make beautiful things. And we start believing that. Because we can't make beautiful things out of us. God can. And you see, this is where all Christians, or this is maybe just a good place to put this in. All Christians are called to full discipleship. And, and I say this because if our lives are meant to point at God's glory, all our lives, then all of us are called to be disciples, not just professional Christians. So many of you know the story of Martin Luther, right? He was a, he was a monk because he wanted to serve God and give God glory with all his life. So he, he, he um, secluded himself in a monastery. He gave up worldly riches or whatever. And he was doing a lot of the stuff we're talking about and tried to live a life of discipleship alone in an environment of seclusion. And that's not necessarily bad. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Radical Discipleship, talks about the moment when Luther left the cloister and decided to live out his discipleship in the world, in his day-to-day work. And let me just read what he says. He said, Luther's return from the cloister to the world was the worst blow the world had suffered since the days of early Christianity. And when he says the world, he means the non-Christian world or, or the maybe even Satan's power in the world. He's talking about the evil part of the world. He says the renunciation he made when he became a monk was child's play compared to that which he had to make when he returned to the world. Now came the frontal assault. The only way to follow Jesus was by living in the world. Hitherto the Christian life had been the achievement of a few choice spirits under the exceptionally favorable conditions of monasticism. Now it is a duty laid on every Christian living in the world. The commandment of Jesus must be accorded perfect obedience in one's daily vocation and life. The conflict between the life of the Christian and the life of the world was thus thrown into the sharpest possible relief. It was a hand-to-hand conflict between the Christian and the world. In other words, when we start living out what we say on Sunday and what we do on Monday, everyone will start to see the difference. For some, at your workplace, your neighbors, in your school, for some it will be attractive and they'll want to become disciples. Right? We've seen some of this. For others, it's going to cause hatred. They're going to treat us worse. But we're called to live out our discipleship in our everyday life. And as a church, this is why we talk so much about work, about vocation, about how our Sunday needs to bleed into our Monday. This is why... Um, even if, if some of you have the baptism, for the, this was the first time for me. This is why parents baptize their children. It's pastors don't do all the work. 
It's about all of us living into our discipleship daily and taking on what God's called us to. So this morning, rather than going into more illustrations, um, I want to show you a video of three stories of people from our congregation that decided to engage in this path of discipleship. We'll end with this. So if you want to watch with me. Hi, my name is Ashley Hughes, and I design buildings for a firm in the city. My name is Julie Mitchell. I'm a PhD student at the University of Kansas Medical Center. I study T-cell development and leukemia. My name is Brandon Haverty. I work at Red Legacy. It's a commercial real estate firm. We do retail, shopping center development, and in Kansas City and surrounding markets. Well, I think my journey of faith starts from a really young age, as early as six or seven, just really having, uh, just really being drawn to God and believing in God being something really easy for me, and um, but just not really knowing who that God was, uh, if it was the God of Jesus or Hinduism or whatever other religion has offered. And so I think it was just uh, a long journey of trying to figure that out. Still, always just kind of struggling with with, with the church and uh, maybe being a little turned off by it, not wanting not wanting really a religion or laws or legalism, but really wanting a, a life to live and a relationship. And um, so there was a long a long journey that um, I kind of lived as like as a homeless Christian, as, as Tom would say, um, trying to live out a faith by myself and ultimately coming to realize that I couldn't do it by myself and that I needed other people and that people really needed me and that I had something to offer too. And um, so I think it was just a few years ago where I started to inch my way into Christ Community. I found Christ Community actually through the young adult group. The church I was at before, there weren't really any young single 20 and 30 year olds. Um, that was fellowship with that group of people, something I was missing in, in my walk with Christ. And, my church uh, life. I found Christ Community uh, at the time. I uh, had a girlfriend and we were looking around at different churches, stumbled upon Christ Community just because of the beautiful outside uh, structure there at Brookside. Uh, happened to go on Sunday um, and really uh, enjoyed the sermon, uh, the music, uh, the worship of it. It felt, uh, it felt uh, it strangely enough, kind of just very comfortable. It was just kind of a long journey of really trying to finally figure out what I think the Bible talks about through the whole book is that um, you can't do anything without Him and uh, that you need Him for everything and that His grace is sufficient. Um, yeah, that nobody's going to be perfect. We're going to still strive to towards perfection, but just understanding just the grace that he, that he offers. After the service, we were happy to meet a, a couple that uh, were talking to us about a potential uh, community group Bible study they were starting uh, there in about a month or so. So they took down our contact information and, and you know, we kind of made a contact within the church at that point. And so we continued to go uh, in those weeks of the fall before the community group starting. Unfortunately, uh, my girlfriend and I uh, happened to break up. And so um, I emailed her and, and asked if she was going to go, and she said that she wasn't going to go. She was going to go back to the, the church she was previously going to. So that, that first Tuesday that the community group started, I showed up. And I had met four of the uh, 
12 people or 11 people that uh, were going to be attending the community previously, and the other ones I, I did not know at all. And so when I, I walked in, it was, it, was, it was kind of interesting and funny um, that it was four married couples uh, and then a couple that was engaged, and then myself. And so as we're kind of going around sharing, uh, getting to know each other, you know, I, I asked, is it all right if I continue to be here? Because it seems like this is a more couple's Bible study, and you know, I'm couple-less. Um, and they all laughed and said, no, we're, we're glad to have you. It just kind of happened this way. But uh, no, we want you to keep on coming. This is absolutely a Bible study for you. As I've grown older, and really as I've delved deeper into my faith and really understood what it is to be a Christian, I found that I, I want to get involved in the lives of the younger generation, um, to let them know the things that I've learned and um, really just be a part of their walk and their faith. And um, I found too that it's for people my age, we're looking for the same thing in the, in the next the generation before us. So we're looking for those mentors who've already walked where we've walked and can help us along our own path. For me, it's the community group that has been the, the single biggest factor uh, in, my, in my growth the last 12 or 14 months. I, I don't see how I could have grown without getting involved. And, and for me, just simply going to church on Sundays, uh, patting myself on the back as I walked out the door, and then waiting in for next Sunday. Um, you know, now it's, it's something in the middle of the week that uh, brings my attention to the Lord again. You know, they've encouraged me for daily devotions. We have reading through the Bible study that, uh, you know, comes up periodically. And it's just the constant touches I get through the community group that, you know, always keeps me, you know, centered uh, around the Lord, even, you know, just during a general work. We're really thankful for the things I'm learning. I think we have uh, some really smart leadership here who has a good theology and a good approach to life. And um, I think we have pastors that really pastor and our shepherds. Um, I think it's really evident with the leadership here. Um, really thankful for the friendships I've built too. I think we um, were really just iron sharpening iron, as, well, as one of my friends said. And I think um, we really sharpened one another and encouraged one another. And, um, Father, as we enter this next season as a church, would you continue to grow us into disciples and empower us to go and multiply disciples in our own communities? Help us to have the power to grasp your love as we go about our day-to-day -day work and as we open ourselves up to suffering and obedience that we would endure because of the reality of your love. Help us as a church to continue to depend on your power for the plans that we believe you're leading us into and keep our eyes on you to bring you glory and not our own. In the name of the Father, the Son, and your Spirit that lives within us. Amen. 
And now, as we continue to think of God's amazing love through Christ, here at the Brookside campus, we celebrate a meal most weeks that's a tangible reminder of the good news of the gospel that our sins have been forgiven.